The following is for information purposes only and should in no way be construed as investment advice. Today we have a bumper Christmas episode in which I'm joined by Ben Kewen of Dowgate Wealth in a conversation with Angus Thurwell, co-founder and CEO of Hotel Chocolat. Angus gives us a masterclass in how to develop a business by listening to the preferences and requirements of your customers. He articulates how building creativity and innovation into the business process and doing things the right way and not just the easy way can help build long-term sustainable growth. Angus also discusses some key benefits of being a founder-led business. In today's episode, we learn how Black Forest Gatto drinking chocolate is a thing and one of several essential items you might consider putting into your Hotel Chocolat basket for this year's Christmas treats. Please enjoy our conversation with the maverick, Angus Thurwell. So hi, Angus. Uh, Thanks for joining us today. I'd like to start off by learning a bit about your childhood and early life. From what I gather, you come from a family of entrepreneurs, and I think you showed some early business flair when you were at school. Yeah, I was very lucky. I had a idyllic childhood in many respects. I was born in Newcastle, so I'm from really good stock, God's own country. And um, after about a few years, when I was age three, my father, who is an entrepreneur, serial entrepreneur, aged 85, at that point was a young man in the 1960s. And he um, had been one of the early directors of Mr. Whippy, the ice cream brand. And they decided to sell to a big outfit, Northern Foods, known as Northern Dairies then. And they asked him, what are you going to do now? And he didn't really have any, any fixed plan. I don't think they should have sold it. I think they made a mistake. But um, there were other people involved. My dad you know, knows my views, but he didn't have total control over it. The reason he was pulled in was because he had an electrical engineering background and he'd been working at a business that had perfected this way of keeping the ice cream being made while the vehicle was moving. Seems really weird to think today, but before that, the only way of doing an ice cream round was to use an insulated box. And when the ice cream melted, you had to go back to the depot. So it was a really big step forward to be able to make the ice cream as you keep going mode, which meant You could stay out for as long as there were crowds and people who wanted to buy Mr. Whippy. So he liked the idea that Northern Foods put forward, which is to go and run the investment they had in the West Indies, headquartered in Barbados. It spanned an ice cream company and also a yogurt-making operation in Barbados and Antigua. So we all piled on the boat. It was actually like a banana boat that went backwards and forwards. And we just turned up in Bridgetown and my dad put me into school there and I just had the most amazing time. And then we came back from there and you know, had further schooling in, in the Northeast and then went to a boys boarding school in North England called Barnard Castle School. When I was there, we had a lot of freedom when you were in the sixth form. In those days, I had quite a kind of laissez-faire regime and it provided a lot of scope for some early entrepreneurial activity. I understand you set up the school's film club. Well, actually took it over and been set up 
ages before by some other boys and then people kept leaving in the upper six and then had to find somebody to pass it on to to hold the torch for the film society and I said I'll do it and I did it with my best friend Paddy and we just thought wow this is amazing you've got this kind of free use of the chemistry labs and their real projector we've been accounted a film rental business in Wardour Street in London and we've got 300 boys in the age before Netflix was in <laughs> <laughs> so we just kept looking through these catalogues of films and were able to pick some quite racy ones to put on and made posters and put them up around a school saying you know our biggest film I think that we put on was Straw Dogs and you know we might have started a rumour that Susan George gets a top off. We literally had queues at the door to come and see this. And we had it as a subscription thing first. You had to pay to join and then you were allowed to see so many films. But we then decided to also take space on the door where we had spare seats. That was kind of a turning point to do both those models together. And we literally had so many silver coins that we had to go into money laundering next to get try and get rid of all the money. So it was, it was, yeah, great fun. Really, 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 you know, quite funny how you do things early on that stick with you and that you go back to. You could have created Netflix rather than Hotel <clears throat> Chocolate. I know, strategic blunder. <laughs> <laughs> so I know music is important to you, and I've heard you say, and I wasn't letting you going to get away with it, that you had a crush on Stevie Nicks as a teenager and that you've had a lifelong appreciation of the music of Pink Floyd. I can totally relate to both of those things. And I know you have a very musical son. Do you play music yourself? Does it still play a big part in your life? I can't play any music myself, but my son is a full-time musician, singer-songwriter, and yeah, he just loves it. I think my contribution is I love words and the songwriter bit. I feel I might have been able to contribute some genes there you've <laughs> got some you. lyrics out there has, has Fergus used any of your lyrics <laughs> I keep trying to throw lines his way but okay. he's his own man and holds himself to very high standards so uh, okay. none of them have made the cut yet <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to look him up on YouTube he's, he's definitely well, on Spotify I've listened to some of his stuff he's very good yeah into Fergus.com he's doing well he's okay. really you know, enjoying it and he's building a very good fan base Moving on to Hotel Chocolat, you know, how did you meet your co-founder, Peter? Well, Peter hired me to come and work in a high-tech business in Cambridge. We met up because I decided to move out of living in France. I'd gone to live in Lille in the north of France as part of my uh, university degree. I had French and economics, and one year I had to be spent in France, and i was really wanting it to be a job rather than be attached to a university. And um, they, you know, I got a job with this kind of random business in Lille and they'd forgotten all about me when I turned up. And it was like, I'm mad, you know, Longley, it's a reason, you know. And it's like, what? Has anybody got anything for them to do? It turned out they were a very, very smart high-tech business with a unique machine that was useful for software engineers. This is in the 1980s. And I asked questions and worked out what it could do. And they were only selling this machine, the Micropros 
2000 machine, it's called <laughs> Microprose 2000. And it was very much, you know, the iPad of its day, believe me. There was a whole untapped market. So I said, look, let me have a go seeing if I can sell it in the UK. And it was very well taken up. So by the time we got around to the end of the first year, I'd added 25% to the turnover of the business. And they kind of went from not knowing what to do with me to calling me Le Vachelet, which means the milking cow. So I thought, I'm not sure how I feel about that. But anyway. Compared with what the French are calling us at the moment, these days, I think that's, I'll take that as a compliment. Like a compliment. Yeah, yeah exactly. I know. There was definitely a compliment wrapped up in there. But we had a great, you know, a lot of fun there. They were smart software engineers, had a lot of laughs. And they said, look, don't go back to university, stay here. And I did that, I stayed for another year. And then by the end of that second year, you know, I kind of reached my limits with the boss. You know, we were, you know, it was too many arguments and stuff. So I thought, right, I'll go back to UK and I'll find something similar. I seem to have found a little metier here that I could do. And the business Peter was involved in, Peter Harris, my co-founder, was in a similar-ish high-tech area. So I applied for the job, which was to do be the international marketing manager turned up and Peter, who is normally a cautious person, hired me on the spot. So he's either really desperate, couldn't find anybody else, or <laughs> like me. I'm not quite sure which one it was. So I joined the business and we really hit it off. And within the year, I decided to leave this business, Torch Computers, and do something together. We had an idea which was little packs of refreshing white peppermints with companies' logos around them which would be used to promote launches or the marketing message on. And we got very excited about this one because we went to the library in Cambridge and colour photocopied loads of different well-known logos and shrank them to size and then spent afternoons with scissors and some prick glue sticking them around little packs of peppermints and going, God, look at that one. That's going to be brilliant. <laughs> anyway, so we thought, actually, this could work. Let's do it. And set up as the Mint Marketing Company in a little lock-up in, outside Cambridge in an industrial park and um, made it work. We got some great orders from people like British Airways, who put them on every tray, Panasonic, Sony, Barclays Bank, et cetera, et cetera. And it really caught the imagination. And it's literally evolved into the business that Hotechocolat is today, we don't do peppermints anymore, but we certainly always love mint. How did you make the jump? When did you wake up and say, actually, it's chocolate? Yeah, I mean, we were looking for things, for ideas that would be scalable. We definitely didn't want to be small-time players. We were super ambitious, and we only wanted something that would have the capability of, of going around the world with. It coincided with some of our customers saying, look, I've reordered your mints three times, okay? And I love you. I love your product, but, you know, you must have something else. What have you got? I know you have. Come on. <laughs> you know, we, we thought we've actually got to have something. So we happened upon chocolate. We just thought, you know, it's going to have to be that chocolate, isn't it? That chocolate stuff. And bear in mind, at this point, we were completely and utterly through and through peppermint. It took a big shift to start thinking about chocolate. And at that point, in the 19... 19- 80s chocolate was not an exciting thing it was just a slightly strategy change slightly boring and yeah a lot of heritage european brands or camp lines that were heavily advertised on tv that were actually more exciting but 
we just thought, well, okay, let's have a look at it. And the more we examined it and got to understand how to make chocolate, the more potential it seemed to have. And, and certainly when we talk to other people about chocolate, they seem to have more excitement than when we talk to them about peppermints. You know, I think we were the only people in the world that were more excited about peppermints than chocolate. You're still a B2B business. Totally B2B. And so you've gone from a B2B business where you're branding other people's products, whether they're peppermints or chocolates, to one where you emerged as a B2C player, a direct-to-consumer player, and evolved this amazing provenance and authenticity around the product. Your love of chocolate emerged at this time, did it, and your passion for the more cocoa, less sugar. How did that evolve into the picture that we know today? Being B2B certainly taught us about how to get stuff manufactured and how to be a good service business. And the volumes that we were doing enabled me to begin to specify how we wanted our chocolates to be made for us. At this point, we weren't in manufacturing at all. We were in assembly and packaging and then supplying the finished product. So I was able to go to our chocolate suppliers who I handpicked in typically European countries, family-run, medium-sized businesses who were competent manufacturers but small enough to value our business. And I started you know, sort of saying, look, I'd like it to be a bit more like this and a bit more like that. And could you try this? And we got a really good reaction from that creativity coming through the chocolate. So then it wasn't a huge leap to think about having a direct consumer element to the brand. We started out with the giftability of chocolate because there weren't very many options if you wanted to send a gift to somebody else, literally flowers or or nothing. And we created a box of chocolates called the Chocogram, fitted to a letterbox and had a card with it that could carry a message. And all you had to do is phone us up with a credit card and we'd get it sent off and it would arrive next day. So we started really with that very tight idea of it's going to be an event-driven, delivered chocolate business. And we didn't try and take on the whole chocolate global kind of industry in one go. We came at it from areas where we thought we could bring something new and, and improved. It got momentum and we started like, building a customer following. One of the downsides was there was a long time between people reusing the service. They typically would come back you know, for the same event the following year. And a year is a long time to wait for another £20 order. So that was kind of like a business problem that needed to be fixed that we couldn't create a sustainable business model just around that. The other gear that we found was from just observing what happened when I had a new tray of chocolates that we'd created and taking them around our little office, you know, we had a few people by then, and getting them to taste the chocolates and score what they thought of them, and then getting the scores back and then basically telling everybody which chocolate won. And so, wow, this is, I've never seen our team get so excited. You know, it's just something here that really has the power to excite people. So then that became the Chocolate Tasting Club, which was a subscription business, which would give us really nice regular monthly revenues and would 
offer the customer an ever-changing range of chocolates to taste and assess. And we would get, obviously, great community feeling from that. And we would also find out what the great British public really liked in chocolates, you know, and be able to test out some new ideas and try and uncover some new techniques and recipe direction. I should just add that the Chocolate Tasting Club has now sort of morphed into the business and that drumbeat of innovation is, is really at the heart of British Chocolat. And it shows itself through a very prolific number of limited edition launches that we make through the year. And so, it, you know, it's literally, it's in the business and it's a key tenet of what we do. What's the most unusual recipe that's made it through or the one that you've sort of seen and thought, that'll never fly? I've got an aversion to novelty. I've seen a lot of brands do, you know, wasabi chocolate and all sorts of bonkers things to, you know, to try and innovate. But that's not innovation. That's just novelty. Good innovation should have longevity behind it. So we're not really looking for novelty and we're definitely not looking as well for only crowd pleasers that every person would give seven and a half out of 10 to, but hardly anybody gives 10 out of 10 to. We're looking for chocolates that excite the different tribes of chocolate enthusiasts who are out there. Some people love creamy, white, vanilla, patisserie-esque types of chocolate. Other chocolate enthusiasts are really into cacao and the the ethics and the kind of wild, unreconstructed flavours of just very low sugar, very punchy, hardcore cacao-led chocolate, and then everything in between. And understanding those tribes and what they're after is, is the foundation of you know, our innovation. We have a really deep understanding of the consumer like that and making sure that we put enough innovation into all the different tribes, lanes that they have their preferences in is the structure behind the creativity. As you scale, you've got the opportunity to discover new tribes in terms of they become more apparent and more economic to serve, I guess. What we do, and there's constant surprises. I mean, we launched a velvetizer chocolate flavor a few months ago, which I was very skeptical about. But the rest of my tasting team were very enthusiastic about it. And I thought, well, I don't have the casting vote. I listen and I can influence what we do. But I thought, well, let's give it a try. And it was Black Forest Gatto drinking chocolate. And I just thought, well, you know, who's interested in Black Forest Gatto? Who has been interested in Black Forest Gatto? We're going back to the 1970s again. Aren't <laughs> it's the 1970s, you know. So it's. I think the players are back in. Aren't they? Well, I know. I mean, where can you even buy it? How do people know what Black Forest Gatto actually even <laughs> yes. is or supposed to taste like? It's a complete disconnect with today's foodie culture. I just do not get it. We used proper Morello cherry in it and natural cherry and a base of dark chocolate and we played with the recipe and got it just right and then and launched it and it went straight to being the number one <laughs> velvetizer really? drinking chocolate recipe i, I haven't seen it i'm gonna to have to try it because i'm uh, right up there i'm definitely gonna try it as a business you sort of developed this direct to consumer before you opened your first shop which was very different and very early at the time that you did that. Can you just talk through the experience of opening the first shop and how that decision was taken? Well, in retrospect, we tackled the hardest bits first, which is 
making chocolate into a delivered gift product and then a, Absolutely, yeah. a subscription product. And that made us very disciplined and also taught us things that were first in the market, in some cases, first globally. And as we progressed, we always had the intention of becoming broader facing onto the market while still respecting our everlasting brand pillars. By the time we got to the early 2000s, we had a proper scaling chocolate subscription business. Our delivered gift side was also doing well, and we could make both customer bases discover the other service as well. So we were getting some of the work there, but we weren't happy with the brand. We had Choc Express as the brand name for the fast delivered chocolate gifts, which seemed appropriate in the early days of the internet when you had to kind of just say what you did on the tin, but certainly did not confer any expectation of quality on our chocolate. And the Chocolate Tasting Club, again, you know, another, it does what it says on the tin kind of brand. So we thought we need to get a brand that gives us some vavavoom. What is it? So I spent months and months thinking about what does Hoda Chocolate, what do we want? What does this business want to promise from its products? What is the customer going to get from us? And it came down to escapism, escapism through chocolate, if you like. This ability to take you somewhere else in your mind through the kind of almost transcendental pleasure of amazing chocolate melting all over your taste buds and you know that kind of thing that chocolate can do. So I you know, played around with loads of different names and got to Chocolat to be in there because I'd lived in France and I'd heard French women, you know, who can say it even better than Stevie Nicks could say it. <laughs> it, it I have to say Chocolat sounds much more appealing than chocolate, doesn't it? Actually, yeah. if you think about it, chocolate is a snap. It's chocolate snap. Yeah. And that's one part of the chocolate experience. And that comes from the Mayan chocolatel, which is to do with the action of how the very early drinking chocolates were made with uh, bowls and wooden instruments. It was like a kind of noise that they tried to capture. But chocolat is the seductive melt. And that's the bullseye. And uh, hotel as well. It's a great. Well, hotel, you know, actually, yeah, hotel is the elusive one. I was just trying to find el- something that went with chocolat. And I, in the end, came to hotel. And, you know, as soon as I kind of had it in front of me, I thought, wow, that's it. It's got escapism. It's got sense of yeah. being naughty. It's distinctive. It works well. You know, one's Anglo-Saxon hotel. It's not hotel chocolat. It's hotel chocolat. So, yeah, like a serendipity moment when, when those two things magnetised together Absolutely. for our company. That then meant that we had the ability to put it on a fascia and create a world where we could invite people in to come and get closer to the brand, come and you know, see what we do, come have a taste, come and talk to our team, come and lose yourself in a, in a hotel chocolat store. And you united these two brands together effectively to yes. form Hotel Chocolat. yes. You talked about capital discipline as well. I mean, you know, you, and opening your first shop, but clearly you then made the decision to actually manufacture your own products. That was another big step in the company's development. Could you talk us through a little bit what led to that decision and how it's helped benefited you as a business over the, over the last? Yeah, yes, uh, since you've been going. I mean, I mean the, the capital discipline has always sort of been in us, and we you know like to do exciting things, the ability to create escapism through chocolate, but it's got to work. 
and it's got to be sustainably efficient. And, and the beauty of a good business model is it, it works at all levels. So the capital discipline was important when we made the move into stores to complement what we already had. And we were very clear at that point that those stores had to do something in addition to what we could do already through the online catalogue business. What could stores bring that's different and complementary? And we've always had that in our view of physical stores. And the same thing applied when we started to think about getting into manufacturing. Up to that point, we were quite happy working with a quite a wide base of very specialist chocolate makers who did exactly what we wanted. And they delivered the chocolates in bulk to our design. We then had an assembly and packaging team who brought together the packaging that we designed. And we then were able to create distinctive products. Pressure arose because we were growing and some of our partner chocolate makers said, hey, you know, if you want more chocolate from us next year, we're going to have to buy a new line and you're going to have to underwrite it because we wouldn't normally have bought that. At that point, we thought, well, look, if we're going to be underwriting all this kind of new capital equipment, we may as well be underwriting it ourselves and have it as, you know, as in our own factory. So we looked at the benefits of doing that and we realised that we could also get more IP protection. We'd seen that some of our ideas were being touted around the market and there was a small time lag before something remarkably similar would pop up somewhere. And we just saw, look, we're a brand. We need to have IP control. And it's way better if we can have that built into the way we make products as well as the way they look and the way they perform and the way they taste. It's got to be some IP and the methods we use to be able to create our products. That was I remember, the driver. I remember famously... You know, Waitrose had to apologise for you to using the same shaped bar. So is that type of capital investment you know, led to that competitive advantage that you'd hoped for? Or do you think it's been a net positive? We're a real business. We're not a back-to-back merchant who finds an idea and then plugs it into a grocer and kind of sits in between and juggles it for a bit before it sort of all disappears. Because those ideas can work, but they're, they're kind of transitory. We're interested in a long-term, properly invested, branded machine that can understand and take responsibility for every single stage that ends up with some amazing chocolate escapism in our customers' houses. And that begins with knowing enough about cocoa farming, the agricultural side, the sustainability, the ethics around the farmers' incomes and livelihoods, we got involved in that. We bought an old cocoa farm in, in the Caribbean in St. Lucia and directly run that as a subsidiary of the business. 15 years later, it's still going strong and we've learned so much all the way through to manufacturing. And we take responsibility for the energy we use, the people in our team who make the chocolate, the packaging, the water usage, all that. I mean, you know, I think brands of the future, one way or another, are going to have to face into taking responsibility for every impact that they make in communities and on Mother Earth. So I think there was a point when people looked at our business model and thought, oh, you know, it's very capital heavy, putting all that money into manufacturing. They could have just back-to-backed it and got it all made by somebody else. You know, that manufacturing ethos has so many benefits for us. 
and I wouldn't change my mind if I went back in time at all. I'd say, Angus, over that period, it's been one of where you stayed ahead of the business zeitgeist, you know, in terms of you're an online direct-to-consumer business before you had shops, which was unheard of in the time you did it. You were ahead of the game in terms of authenticity and sustainability being an issue for you. And now that's everyone's objective. Can we just talk a little bit about overseas expansion. You talked earlier about how you and Peter in the early days were looking for ideas that could be global businesses. And I know at the time of the IPO, you just retrenched from your first foray into North America. You had some initial shops in Copenhagen as a sort of trial overseas move. And you subsequently successfully gone into Japan. And I believe you're now going back into North America. What are the main obstacles and considerations of taking this and moving it into becoming a global business? Everybody that I know who runs or leads consumer brands really says the same thing, that it's a long, hard road to get your brand to travel. And we're probably getting towards our first decade of of effort. And we're really only now beginning to really bear fruit and the lessons are multiple and there's no shortcut. With a type of business that we are that is about food culture, it's multi-channel, involves actual product. You know, it's not a streamed or a downloaded product. It's an actual physical thing. It needs shipping. It's fragile. It has a shelf life. There's laws and food regulations that are different. We're very seasonally peaky as well, which in a very uncertain world. I've come to love the Christmas peak, for example, the fact that it just comes around every year really reliably. And I think we've all changed from sort of wishing we had a more kind of flat business through the year that was, you know, growing, but kind of a flatter profile to now relishing the dependably recurring nature of some of these big events like Valentine's Day in Japan and White Day in Japan and Christmas in the UK and holiday season in, in America. They're just wonderful culturally embedded things that you can rely on. So there's no feeling of we've wasted time or we've made mistakes. I think we've evolved towards the best way for our brand to address big international markets. And along the invested learning curve, we've been into smaller markets like Denmark, and we actually tried the Netherlands as well. And we used those markets because they were close to the UK and we could travel there quite easily and stay quite close to them. The whole idea was that would prepare us for proper foray into some big markets. And we're now you know, at the point where we've got a quarter of our store estate globally is in Japan. We're building a significant online business in America. What we've really learned is that we have a lot of options about which part of the brand and the operating models we deploy in different markets, depending on a whole suite of factors. And that's probably the most significant learning we've come to, that there's not just one way of doing it. There's multiple ways to build Hotoshokla in different uh, territories. In Japan, what we found is that the consumer really respects brands that are authentic and seem to be completely obsessed about their subject matter. That's what they seem to over-index on, which is great. We're right down their street. 
And have you had to evolve products especially for the Japanese taste or palates? A little bit around the edges, but to be honest, the library of products that we have more or less work in all markets. There's some format differences. For example, people in Japan you know, like slightly smaller sized gifts physically. Yeah. That's quite easy to do. People in America like slightly larger gifts than the Brits. There's a surprise. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, American Valentine's Day is about a, a massive, if you don't have to use two arms to lift it up, you don't love it enough. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, whereas Brits are a bit, you know, kind of like embar- embarrassed to do that. Americans got no problem at all. The Japanese give Valentine's gifts to, on a non-romantic basis, to people they work with. So the gifts are much, much smaller, but the good news is they need at least 20 each. Yes. So um, <laughs> each market has, has a different permutation on it, but the, the actual chocolate recipes that we have that are in those different gifts work in all markets. Can we just come on and talk about sort of events of the recent past? You said the events of 2020, the pandemic and the lockdown, brought out the best of Hotel Chocolat. And you've clearly had a more resilient financial performance than most retail businesses in what ways are you operationally a better business as a result of these events? We really drew on the reserves in Hatter Chocolate culture, the teamwork, the entrepreneurial ethos, and the cohesion of the Hatter Chocolate family was really put under pressure. And it was just the most wonderful experience to lead a business that has reserves in those areas and to feel it kind of kicking into gear. So we were able to grow in both the COVID years, despite our previously main channel, our physical stores being closed for the biggest parts of both those years. And that kind of speed of adaptation was breathtaking to be part of. Just something I'll always remember. We're able to use creativity and the fact that we're vertically integrated to work as a tight team and adapt the model to suit the the necessary conditions. So, for example, in in the first few months of the pandemic, when we couldn't have any stores open at all, we got all our stock back to the centre, to our distribution centre, and then had figured out safe ways of working, which meant that our throughput of packages was smaller because we needed more space. We needed to make sure people didn't come into contact with each other. So we reacted by creating selections and themed bundles. And that meant that we could serve a lot of customers whilst website was being absolutely hammered every day. And we could also work safely and professionally. So there were some fantastic things that went on like that. And uh, our customers were so loyal and so understanding and so supportive and you know, we pledged to do whatever it took to, number one, keep the Hershey Chocolat family together, whatever was thrown at us. Um, number two, to keep the chocolat flowing to our customers and help raise the morale inside homes. Well, I know my Hotel Chocolat velvetizer has become a sort of regular working from home treat. And it's done a great job for you as a business, developing valuable subscription revenues. I'm definitely going to try the Black Forest Gatto version. 
it's, it's been such a success. Are there other subscription opportunities? Yes. So we've been investing quite a bit in the tech that enables the slickest possible experience and there's still more to come. But in terms of the proposition to our customers, the ability to create a selection of what your family really likes from Hood Chocolat, which could be completely across different categories. It could be uh, biscuits of the gods and you know some velvetizer chocolate, a couple of bottles of you know salted caramel vodka and a Cirrus Dark Fix chocolate selection and some champagne truffles and some chocolate-covered nuts or something. And just say, I'm populating my basket as you talk, <laughs> as you speak, Angus. You know, in return for the loyalty of just saying, yes, please deliver one of those to us you know, every couple of months, we can then offer rewards back. You know, our aim is to make it a win-win. And it's very much a fit and forget for our customers. They like our brand, they can pick exactly what their family likes. And then it's a fit and forget. It just keeps, you know, just keeps coming at a rate that the family, you know, wants to control. So that's a big thing for 2022. And then we have our coffee proposition, which is Rabo Estate Coffee, named after our cacao farm in, in St. Lucia, where coffee also grows in amongst the cocoa. And we're at the early stages of building that at the moment, but we just, we, we just launched a machine called the Podster, which is a coffee pod machine, which uses our, our coffee pods and comes with a recycling device called the Pod Cycler um, that you use at home to make your aluminium pods recycle ready and can go straight into the recycling bin. So all that, we've brought some real innovations and that's another dimension to the subscription platform that's coming up. Fantastic. And on COVID, I mean, everyone's talking about supply chains, pricing power, and you have this wonderfully vertically integrated business. How does that issue manifest itself in your business? I mean, I struggled to get an advent calendar this year, but I always do because I leave it to the last minute. Yeah, Are you going to pay more for food, chocolate this year? or Yeah, every year, Ben, there's, you know, as a manufacturer, there's things going up and stuff coming down. but we all know that this is an unusual time in, in history where everything's going up and it's driven yeah. by imperfections in the supply chain, constraints and, you know, kind of tightening of demand in some areas. So we try and mitigate as far as we can. Being a scaling business, we can bring economies of scale and we can try and be innovative in taking out bad cost, removing ineffective stages or simplifying packaging we literally try everything we possibly can to avoid having to pass on price increases to our customers. But from time to time, you know, we have to. And as long as we represent great value for the quality, our customers are understanding of it. The one thing they say to us is, never cost engineer, please. Don't water down the quality. Just always do the best, get the best, yeah. make the best. At the time of the IPO, Angus, I remember you and Peter were very concerned about going onto the public markets and the risk or the, the being able to retain your independence as a business. And you've both, between the two of you, retained majority control of the business since IPO. How do you think about these issues now? You're of a bigger business, you're much more well-established 
there's obviously a lot of debate around having different ways of doing this now with different classes of shares. And there's been a high profile IPO recently where the founder wanted to retain control in the business. And should London bend to these things because of, you know, potentially losing business to the US and or other markets where there are fewer constraints on different classes of shares. But it strikes me, you know, it's demonstrably been a success as a, you know, in terms of the way the business has performed. But I just really wanted to see how you reflect on it now, that whole experience. I think I mean, what we've learned in the first five years of, of being listed business is that we're able to access capital through the market, which is, which is great. It can lead to some dilution. And we've still got headroom to raise more capital and still maintain a straight majority of shareholding. The long-term guardianship of the business direction and the brand values is absolutely non-negotiable. That's best driven by the active co-founders in the business. That's really our customers and our team tell us as well. So we have a responsibility there to perpetuate that. We've come through a very unusual time with the pandemic where you know, businesses in across the world have taken hits in different ways. And as far as we were concerned, we didn't want to hide under a rock until it was all over. We wanted to actually organize ourselves and take business opportunities as we saw them and use whatever time productively rather than just kind of write it off. So we've raised capital successfully and this using the markets in the best possible way, I think. We are Absolutely. growth stock Absolutely. as well. We're, we're driving you know, accelerated growth at the moment. And the profitable shape of the business is showing itself again after having you know, two COVID years. We're now getting back into the normal profit shape, which means that we can redeploy those profits back into business and we'll have less recourse to capital raises. Mm-hmm. Looking forward, we can drive strong growth we can maintain long-term brand and business direction and squaring those two things off within our business model seems to be achievable for us. He talked about the benefit of being a founder-led company, which, you know, we absolutely love investing in founders and entrepreneurs that still run the business. But it'd be interesting to hear how this has turned out for you guys. Any examples to show that this has benefited the business? Yeah. When Hutter Chocolat was just starting up, there was another quite well-known chocolate brand that had 800 locations in the UK, including franchise locations. And it seemed impossible that that status quo would change. And really, if you contrast how many CEOs that business has had over 15 years compared to chocolate, you don't have to look very far. You know, there was a swinging door of CEOs arriving and departing every 18 months with a new strategy. And that just Absolutely. just crucifies a business. I mean, it's toxic for the culture and no business can really operate on a basis of let's just squeeze the pips for two years to make myself look good and then I'll disappear, get my bonus and hand it over to somebody else. I mean, that kind of pressure on a business is always going to be terminal. Absolutely. Can we just come on and talk about the future? I know it's I know you're constrained about what you can say, but what do you see as the vision for the business how do you see this business in 10 years time is it going to be 
very, very recognizable as the business today. What's your wish for the business over the next decade? It's a very timely question, Jeremy. We've been working on our latest update on our 10-year plan, and we have a very consistent brand um, vision, if you like. Our purpose is to bring happiness through chocolate. That's never going to go out of date. Our brand pillars of the values we hold dear are originality, so that's innovation and fresh thinking. Number two is authenticity, to be the real deal, to be the sector expert and do the difficult stuff like growing cacao. And then the third one is ethics, being a sustainable business in every respect. So those are more topical than ever, and that's 15 years later. So I think we've got a consistent kind of north star that is holding those everlasting set of values and purpose. And then the way the business creates and and evolves around those is definitely going to change. I mean, we've already changed shape quite a bit in the last two years. We've now got a real kind of in-home aspect to the brand centered around our velvetizer, but also including our alcohol range and our new biscuit range and, and ceramics. So that's taking shape and that complements very well the, the strong and original giftable brand, giftable product range side of what we do. So the shape is going to continue to evolve for sure. It's evolution, not not dramatic revolution. We're definitely on the right trajectory with so many of our formats and channels and power categories that, that are within the business. The culture is the thing that makes any, any, everything possible. We can only achieve our 10-year ambitions through our people. That is the real gold dust of chocolate. It's so nice to have, and I really like when companies have this really clear message or pillars, you know, it just gets everyone moving in the right direction, doesn't it? And it's so important, I think, in business. Keeps um, people on the same page. Exactly. What do you see the biggest constraint to future growth, Angus, as you're looking at the opportunity in front of you? It's probably just bandwidth and execution quality maintenance. We definitely don't want to turn ourselves into busy fools where we try to do things too quickly or got too many balls in the air and we drop too many of them or drop any of them. You know, it's always a judgment call about what pace can the business withstand culturally and executionally whilst not diluting on the quality of what we give our customers. So that's sort of my job as you know, CEO to call that. We're finding an extra gear over the last couple of years, that's for sure. And we're able to grow faster. And that's probably not going to change. We've now become organized. We've arranged ourselves in a way that we like that growth rate and we can organize ourselves to execute well if it continues going at that pace, which is certainly our intention. Making people happy via chocolate conjures up all kinds of different things. What sort of new treats and experiences can people look forward to in the future, in the near term, but any things that we should be all looking to add to our shopping baskets for this Christmas or for Valentine's Day next year? Well, if you haven't got a velvetizer, you definitely need to have one in the family for right, sure. That is, for that, yes. It's definitely yeah. essential. It's literally the foundational of everything. 
I use mine to warm my daughter's milk and every evening as well. So it has multi-uses. It's not just hot chocolate. Thanks for pointing that out, Ben. You're absolutely right. I mean, we're building up the library of chocolate-based <laughs> drinks and they can be served hot or cold. We've got a whole range of coffees already in the market and then more underway. And we're looking at matcha as well that you can prepare in the velvetizer. So oh, there's wow. a long way yet to go in, in terms of what can conjure up. But then apart from that, we've got our biscuit range. We've got biscuits of the gods. They're basically what would happen if a chocolatier and a biscuit maker got together very heavily <laughs> chocolatey, but also you need that biscuit crunch. We feel that people haven't really done chocolate biscuits well enough. There's definitely a gap in the market for... Have you got some nice dark chocolate ones? Yeah, we certainly do. We've got one okay. called... Yeah, that's a Christmas present solved. Nut and, great. nut and nib, which is delicious. It's basically ground cacao nibs left quite kind of rough, mixed with obviously flour and some butter, and then studded with hazelnuts and bigger pieces of cacao as well, and then smothered in chocolate. Delicious. Okay, definitely going to have a look at those. Sort of bring it all together, Angus, in this amazing journey you've had, what have you changed your mind about since starting Hotel Chocolat and getting to this point? Do you view the world differently? The big thing I've learned is just get the best people you possibly can as early as possible. I feel that I might have wasted some time early on in the business by not having the very highest talent people around me that I could have potentially got. I found a few and several of them are still in the business, you know, 25 years later. But it's just now we've got the most amazing caliber of team in the business. And it's just amazing to see what you can achieve when you bring all that talent together. It does sound like you've consolidated that position very effectively in the way you've managed the business over this difficult Absolutely. two-year period. And coming out the other side of this so much stronger. Yeah, I mean, we certainly have in an amazing team and the skills that we're able to get into the business opened my eyes to the possibilities forward. And that's certainly something we're going to keep going on. We're, we're going to hold out for the very best talent and the best calibre of people you can possibly get from whatever backgrounds, wherever they come from, we're a talent-based business and making sure that that door is properly open it is a new dimension in our culture as well. It was sort of always there, but there's definitely an opportunity to kick it wide open and make sure that people who should be applying to come and join Huda Chocolat actually feel that we're the sort of brand that they could work in because they can and we want it. Angus, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. It's been a great opportunity to catch up. I've really enjoyed the conversation Good luck with conquering the world with more cocoa and less sugar. I look forward to uh, following your future success. So it's been great. Thank you very much. Me too. Thanks very much, Angus. Jeremy, Ben, thanks so much. It was a great chat. Really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of In the Company of Mavericks, please subscribe at our website, inthecompanyofmavericks.com where we would appreciate your feedback and any suggestions you might have for future episodes. 